Our sermon this morning comes from John chapter 10, or excuse me, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. It's John chapter 1 and verse 9. Please hear now the Word of God. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You for this opportunity now that we can come before You and hear from You that we might know You better, that love may abound in our hearts more fully. We know Your great commandment which You have given us, which is to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, and minds, and soul, and strength. We come to, now to ask You to help us to love You that You would do so by teaching us Your Word, that You would do so by revealing to us who You are and how we can respond to You, that we might order our lives and love You deeply. And so please help us. We pray that You would help those who need encouragement this morning, that You would teach them that You are a source of grace and mercy in times of need. We pray that You would help us who are caught in temptation and sin, that we would know there is forgiveness found in Christ and freedom and redemption found in following Him. Pray that You would help us as a church to love one another well and love You well and to know You well. So please come and do a mighty and profound work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the famous pastor D. James Kennedy, the pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, wrote of how he came to Christ. He said, at, age, at the age of 23, I was a spiritual derelict, as I was thoroughly satisfied with my secular lifestyle as a ballroom dance instructor. I was a college dropout, but making good money in a job that I immensely enjoyed. I was single, popular, and pretty well unhampered by moral restraints, nor could I ever recall having heard the gospel. I had come in from an all-night dance party one night and thought I had set the alarm clock to wake me at the proper time with the appropriate music for a soothing regain to consciousness, he writes. But what I heard that Sunday afternoon was the thundering voice of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor at Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church. I jumped out of bed to switch the dial as quickly as I could, but it was stopped almost mid-flight by a question I could not brush aside. In the penetrating centurion tones for which he was famous, the great preacher asked, Suppose that you were to die today and stand before God, and He were to ask you, What right do you have to enter into my heaven? What would you say? Kennedy writes, I was completely dumbfounded. I never thought of such a thing as that, and my nonchalance suddenly evaporated into thin air. 
I sat on the edge of my bed as though transfixed, groping for an answer to this simple question. I had enough common sense to realize that even though I had no background in the Bible, this was the most important question that had ever entered my mind. Well, in God's mercy and providence, he led um, D. James Kennedy to a nearby corner newsstand where he asked a very dangerous question. Do you have any religious books? But he, in God's goodness, was given Fulton Osler's The Greatest Story Ever Told. And upon reading that book, by no human design or plan, God saved D. James Kennedy. I find that story somewhat remarkable in the sense that this man who had no desire for God and no pursuit of Him whatsoever was saved in the first encounter that he had with Him. The first presentation of the good news that was brought to him, he immediately responded and his life was transfixed and transformed forever. I find that remarkable, that response. You see, as you well know, many people do not respond to God this way, especially when they fear, first hear of the gospel. We, we are here this morning in John chapter 1, and during this Christmas season, throughout the month of December, we're considering the coming of Christ. And we say around these Christmas times that uh, Jesus is the reason for the season or Jesus is the, the gift that God has given. And those, I think these are helpful uh, statements to a degree. What we want to do in our study of John is to dive much deeper into God's Word and really consider who is Jesus? What did He come for? What, what are we to do with Him? And we see what John has been telling us now. He will do once so once again for the third work, three, third week that Jesus has come with his hands full, one handful of truth and the other handful of grace. And he has come to bring us both truth and grace. And we see it here in this text as well. We begin by understanding he brings truth and we respond and respond to that truth. We receive grace. In fact, we see here the great grace that I think is perhaps the highlight of this passage in verse 12 when it says, but to all who did receive Him who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God. What grace that is. That we can become God's very children. But the reality, and even according to this text, is not everyone is a child of God because not everyone receives Jesus. Not everyone believes in His name. And so what I would like to do this morning as we look at this passage is to consider the response to Jesus' coming. As we think about this new life that He has brought, this new birth that we see there in verse 12 that He has brought to us, to consider how it is that people respond to Jesus both in the day in which He came and our day 2,000 years later. We'll do so in three stages, three steps, if you will. First, we'll consider the arrival of Jesus. Secondly, we'll consider the rejection of Jesus. And thirdly, The reception of Jesus. You see the arrival of Jesus here in verse 9 when the apostle writes, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into this world. So he is coming into this world. This is, if you will, the Christmas message that Jesus Christ has left heaven and has come to the world. He has come and put on flesh and become like us as was promised. A virgin shall be with child or elsewhere for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And he has come into this world, the apostle says, and he has done so as the 
light there in verse 9, the true light. And this is, of course, um, we have seen this theme now uh, in all three weeks that we've been in John chapter 1, that He has come as the light. That is, He has come to show us who God is, to reveal to us the majesty and the splendor and the plan of God. Of course, God had shined His light before He sent Jesus. He had revealed Himself before Christ had come. He displayed His power in creation or His shared his plan through the prophets or explained his character in the law or demonstrated his strength against his enemies or revealed his holiness through sacrifice, displayed his mercy in the covenants. And he had shown his light. He had revealed who he was. But all that light that he had shined up to the point in which Jesus stepped on this earth was just a, just a candle flickering compared to the brilliance of the, of the exposure of who God is that Jesus has brought to us. In fact, you see that in verse 9. He's come, the true light has come to do this very thing, to enlighten us, to enlighten everyone as to who God is, to make Him known to us so that we can have an understanding of God and be captivated by His majesty. We need this light because we live in darkness. We saw that, I think, perhaps last week. When we read verse 5, the light shines in darkness. This world is in the darkness of rebellion and ignorance and sin and, and um, uh, unbelief. And he's come as this light. In fact, he says here in verse 9, the, the true light. He says true, not in the sense of true as opposed to false, but in the sense of true as, as the sense of genuine as opposed to counterfeit. So the reality is there are many counterfeit lights that tell you what life is supposed to be all about, what you are here on this earth to do, and what will satisfy that thirst and that desire that's in you. Well, there's counterfeit lights all over the place. I think they're incredibly evident this time of year as many people, hopefully not you, but perhaps you, lined up at 4 a.m. or some sinful hour um, in order to save $50 on a television or something like that. Right? We, we begin to see, well, this is what life is about. It's about accumulating things, and, and your TV needs to get bigger and brighter, and then you'll be happy. Or your countertops need to be nicer, or your floors need to be, be made of wood and not carpet, or whatever it is. The car needs to get bigger or faster or better. And once you get these things, then you will find your satisfaction, your delight, your happiness, and it's just get more and more and more things. And if it's not the accumulation of things, well, then the purpose that the life, life is about, we are told, is that we're to have happy kids or a, a, a happy, happy retirement. Maybe we're supposed to get a new job or a new vacation or maybe a new handicap or, or maybe a new spouse we're supposed to get or more money or more health or more, more security, whatever it is. This world says, this is a light, this is a light, this is a light. And all these counterfeit lights are telling you how to live your life. They're telling you what you're here to do. And if you just pursue that, then you'll find what you're looking for. And he said, Jesus has come to expose the counterfeits. He's come as the true light. His brilliance will, will cast aside these flickering uh, lanterns and candles. The true light has come, and he has come to show us who God is and how we are to respond to him. That's what he's come to do. He left the glories of heaven and took on the nature of man and was born as a baby to show us the faithfulness of God. He avoided evil absolutely, kept the law perfectly, submitted to the Father joyfully to show us the purity of God. 
He confounded the scribes and taught the meek and declared the word to show us the wisdom of God. He cared for the poor and fed the thousands and healed the sick to show us the kindness of God. He calmed the storm and cast out the demons and called forth the dead to show us the power of God. He wept with the mourning and welcomed the outcast and embraced the unclean to show us the compassion of God. He warned of judgment, rebuked the legalists, chided the money changers to show us the justice of God. He sat with children and sought out friends and feasted with sinners in order to show us the joy of God. He washed the disciples' feet or cried over Jerusalem and preached the gospel in order to show us the love of God. He was rejected by his people, abandoned by his followers, denied by his friends in order to show us the patience of God. He was arrested without cause, convicted without evidence, crucified without mercy in order to show us the determination of God. He gave hope to the thief, prayed for his murderers and declared it is finished in order to show us the grace of God. And he rose from the dead and sent us to the nations and promised he would return in order to show us the plan of God. You see, the true light has come to enlighten us. This is your God. He shows us. He has come to bring us this light. He has come into the world that you might know your maker. You might know the one who loves you more than you could imagine. That we might respond by loving him and obeying him and following him and worshiping him. He's come to us. Don't you love the fact that he's taken the initiative? He's just not sitting up there in heaven and says, okay, you come find me. You're the sinner. You get up here. Oh, he's come down to us. He's come to get us. Friends, I tell you, no matter what pain or trouble or trial you face today, no matter what difficulty or hardship or uncertainty that has come your way, God knows it and God cares for it and he has come to you. In fact, he is coming to you this very moment through His Spirit and His Word, to let you know that He cares for you more than you can imagine. He has come to show truth. He has come to bring grace. But amazingly, not everyone received the truth. Not everybody wanted His grace. As we see, secondly, the rejection of Jesus. Note verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. This phrase, the world, is mentioned three times here. In fact, it was mentioned a fourth time at the end of verse 9. You saw that he was coming into the world. So verse 9 says he was coming. Verse 10 says he has arrived. He actually made it into the world as his baby born on Christmas morning. And then he has this little parenthetical phrase. By the way, in case you want to know about the world, something about it, the world was made through him. It was made through him. So everything that that exists has been made through Jesus. So we've explored this. In the past, but just think about that for a moment. Everything is because of Jesus. We have a sun to warm us, an air to breathe, and a land to live on. That's what he has done for us. Because of Jesus, we have houses to live in and clothes to wear and food to eat. I just thought about this this week. What has Jesus given to us just by making? Because of Jesus, you have work to labor and leisure to rest and sleep to restore. Because of Jesus... You can taste sweetness and smell fragrance and hear beauty and see majesty and touch your spouse. Because of Jesus, you can think creatively and investigate mercy and explore the unknown. Because of Jesus, you could sing beautifully. At least some of you can. You could argue persuasively. You could praise earnestly. Because of Jesus, you could weep over sin and rejoice over truth and laugh over silliness. 
Because of Jesus, you can delight in children, fellowship with friends, savor our brides and grooms, and love our God. He made it all. He made all of this and 10,000 times more. He has made the entire world. Everything and everyone has been made through Him. Every thought and emotion and experience that you have had or will have is made possible because He has made you. He made the world. We've already saw that back up in verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that that was made. He made it all. He made this world, and He was coming into this world, and He came into this world. And we see that last phrase at the end of verse 10, with great sorrow in our heart as we read, Yet the world did not know Him. See, God, the Maker, put on flesh and walked upon the world in which He had made, and the, the world took no notice. And I think the question that at least jumps off the page for me is, how could that possibly happen? How can God, the maker, come to that which he has made, and, and people, the very people who depend upon him for their existence fail to recognize him? How do they miss it? Well, some may, might suggest, well, he didn't come as you expected him. I would agree with that. I think if I were to tell you, and you didn't know this story, that God is going to come into this world, and I'd say, how do you think he's going to come into the world? You'd probably come up with a much different story than what we have been given. You think about the fact that for 30 years he's living in, in some really backwater, hick town. As a tradesman, he has no wife, he has no children, he has no wealth. You would probably not have looked at him and said, I think that man is God. You would not have looked at Jesus if he came and knocked on your door and said, Hi, I am the sovereign God of the world and I have made all things. You would probably close the door. You would not, I don't think you would recognize that. I mean, he was not impressive. He did not come from a good town. Right? Nazareth is, is not D.C. Right? It's more like Charlestown. Right? Now, who, who, who amongst us expects God to be a West Virginian? Right? And that, I mean, that's what he came with. That was, that, would, that was what it was like. You, you would just say, okay, tell me about your family. And he'd say, well, you know, I was born to my mom who was a teenager, and but she was a virgin at the time. You probably find that difficult to believe. You might think, well, that's what they all say. You, you say, well, you made all things. Well, well, what do you do now? And he says, well, you know, I, I made all things at one time, but now I mostly make chairs and tables. Right? You wouldn't buy this, probably. How, how, where have you been? Well, I've been, you know, I've been to Berryville, and, uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've been about 30 miles from town, and I walked around, but I made everything. You would probably think, well, I'm not quite sure this man is God. This, this man from a backwater town to a teenage girl, a blue-collar man who works with his hands, not educated. You probably think, I don't know what God is going to be like, but he's probably not going to come like this man. So you almost understand how is it they missed it at first. But the problem is that he didn't stay that way. He didn't stay in the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. He left. And he began to teach and to heal and to show awesome displays of power and insight and wisdom, clearly identifying himself as the maker who has come into the world. And even after that point, the world still did not know him. And I think they didn't know him because they, because they didn't want to. It's not because there wasn't enough evidence but it was a moral rejection. See, they rejected God's standard. They rejected God. They lived however they wanted to, as if they were God, as if they would, would set the rules and the laws for them to obey. And he comes and he begins to not only reveal God, but he reveals our sin. And the Bible says we didn't like being exposed by him. In fact, when he returned to his hometown, you know what they did after he preached a sermon? They, they tried to kill him. 
When he healed a blind man, they tried to kill him. And when he raised a dead man, they tried to kill him. And we told them that their deeds were evil and they oppressed the poor and they live for money and they love themselves and they do not worship God. They killed him. Creation rose up and it killed its creator. They rejected him. Not because there was not enough evidence to believe. Because they didn't want to believe. And I'm convinced that all lasting rejection to Jesus, all lasting opposition to Jesus, is not intellectual. It is not a lack of evidence. It is moral. It is people who do not want to receive him. They reject Jesus because they love their sin and they love the darkness. And so the world didn't want him, did not know him, but we're left to ask, well, what about his own people? What about the people of God? Certainly they would receive him. Well, you know, verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own here is a reference to, to Israel, the people of God, the people whom he had chosen, and they followed him out of Egypt, and they embraced his covenants and accept his law. They, they heard his prophets and witnessed his mighty acts and awaited the Messiah. His own people, the, the Israel, the people that he had been in relationship with for, for thousands of years, it says his own people did not receive him. Which I think is the, the ultimate indignity, isn't it? It is a much deeper tragedy. We expect the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Romans of this world who are not awaiting a Messiah to maybe miss him. But the people whom he had chosen, who he had cared for, who he had loved, who he had protected and provided for, certainly would recognize him when he came amongst their men. Certainly would receive him, but, but they did not. In fact, one commentator says there can be no more poignant expression of human folly and perversity than Israel's rejection of Christ. In spite of all the centuries of waiting for their promised Messiah, when at last he appeared, they not only dismissed his claim, but instigated his destruction. In fact, I think perhaps the Old Testament almost prepares us for this. It's not the first time they rejected him. In fact, Isaiah chapter 1 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. And so we're almost prepared for this. It probably doesn't surprise us so much, but it's still an an utter tragedy. It reminds me of the old story that I, I trust isn't true, but is powerful anyways about a poor family who saved up and they sent their, their son off to college that he might get a college education which they were never able to afford. And They missed their son for the year he was gone and so they begin to sell some of their property in order that they can take a trip up to see him. And parents arrived on college campus there in their poverty and very evident that they were poor. And the father sees his son there with his friends and, and runs up to him. Father, it's your son, he says. And the son looks at him without any recognition in his eyes turns to his friends and says, I don't know this man. He must be crazy. I think that pictures what what has happened with Christ. That he has come to his own people and they do not want him. They do not recognize him. They, They reject him. They will not receive him. And yet, before we shake our heads with disappointment at Jesus' contemporaries, perhaps we would do well to look at our day. Because I wonder if we're any more inclined to receive Jesus. I wonder if we're any more inclined to, to know him and to follow him. I, I think perhaps we're not. I, I think, in fact, this Christmas season gives us ample evidence that we are not any more desires of the Messiah than they were on their day, as the, the gulf between Christ and Christmas seems to grow broader every year. 
I think it was John Piper who, who, when preaching this text, said he came to America and they received him not. They rejected him in their department stores with season greetings instead of Christmas. They rejected him in their restaurants with happy holidays instead of Christmas. They rejected him in their hospital foyers with Noel instead of Christmas. They rejected him in their secular marketing, exploiting his birthday. They rejected him with a thousand knickknacks and baubles instead of a baby in a manger. They rejected him in their stripped-down carols and wordless tunes. They rejected him in their public schools with Christless plays. And they rejected him in their public speeches, pleasing all by saying nothing. You see, when he was born, the world was not eager to receive them. They would not, did not want him. And, and our day, I don't think, is any different we still don't want the maker who has come to show us truth and to bring us grace. The world has and perhaps always will miss the real point of Christmas because we'd rather not be disturbed by him. We'd rather him not come into our life and, and begin to meddle and begin to change. And so we reject him in this world, whether it's hostility, being offended at Jesus, or simply whether it's indifference. Just living life as if you'd rather not be bored or bothered by your maker. They reject him. It's always a rejection of truth in favor of self-rule. It's always a rejection of grace in favor of sin. Though God in His great love sent His Son to pay for sin, to bring us from darkness to light, from night to day, many still choose darkness. Many still choose the night. The people that I hope you witness to this Christmas season, maybe give them the an invitation to some of our services that we had made up for you, that some of them will reject you. The people that you say a word about Christ, they may reject you. Chances are, many will. It's no different with Jesus. He came and he was rejected. The world rejects him. I wonder if, in fact, there are any here this morning who in their heart would know that they rejected him, that they have not received Christ. That they do not want to know Him. They do not want to live for Him. The world has rejected Him. His people even rejected Him. The, the question then that rises for us is, will the darkness triumph? Right? If the world did not know Him and His own did not receive Him, what hope do we have? But you notice third and lastly, that there are some who receive Him. Consider the reception of Jesus here in verse 12. But... Right? The world did not know him. His own did not receive him. But, he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So not all reject him. Some will receive him. And those who receive him receive this incredible honor and privilege that is to become God's child, to, be, to become children of God. And so the question before you this morning is, is what must happen today in order for you to become a child of God? Or if you already are a child of God, do you know how it is that you have become one? He tells us here in verse 12, you must do two things, which is really, I think, just one thing. It's explained in different ways. He begins by saying here, but to all who did receive him. And so you must receive him. Receiving Jesus means to receive him for who he is, to welcome into your life who, as who he is. And so if he comes to you as a savior, you welcome his Salvation. If he comes to you as a provider, you welcome his provision or a counselor. You welcome his counsel, a protector. You welcome his protection. 
If he comes to you as a treasure, you welcome him as worthy. If he comes to you as a king, you welcome his rule and his authority in your life. You see, you don't get to redefine Jesus. You don't get to have this peaceful coexistence with Jesus as long as he won't disturb you. He could live in the house as long as he doesn't play his music too loud kind of relationship with Jesus. We're just going to put him over in the corner. You don't get to marginalize him. He says you need to receive him as who he truly is. In fact, I find the story when Jesus returns home in Luke chapter 4 somewhat interesting and compelling. You, you might want to turn there. I think I mentioned it already when he came to Nazareth here in Luke 4 after being away for a little while. He went down to Judea and began to preach and things got difficult for him and opposition began to rise there near the capital. And so he would return to Galilee and he would go home to Nazareth. And there in Luke 4 and verse 16, we see the story The Bible says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So Jesus there, if you will, comes home and what does he do? He goes to church service. He goes to the church service of that day and Jesus, because of his rising fame, now that he's returned home, is given the great honor to preach the sermon that that Sunday, that Saturday morning, I guess it would be. And he, so he would stand up and he would read a passage of scripture. I think it was from Isaiah 61, if I remember correctly. And then he would, he would give a short message on what that passage meant. And so after he had finished, I just want you to note their reaction to when he was done with his sermon, according to verse 22, it says, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they loved it. They thought this man can preach. We're glad he is here. And they, they begin to marvel at the words that were coming out of his mouth. We never even heard anything like this. Isn't this great? He's come home and, and he's this incredible preacher and he's bringing us these truths. And, and then they just rejoiced and they found great joy and they begin to speak well. I don't know if they're nudging each other. Isn't this wonderful, incredible? We're so happy he's here. And see, we see this response to Jesus that... Evidently, is not the response he was looking for because he, he decides to give an encore sermon, if you will. They liked that one so well, he preached another. And you see their response to the other in verse 28, somewhat different. Just six verses later, we read, when they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they can throw him down the cliff. A riot broke out in church. When I read that passage, I wonder what I have to preach in order for this to actually take place. A a riot, let's kill them. Let's get them. Where's the cliff? Let's throw them off. I mean, what? Uh, It's extraordinary to me that at one time they're saying, this is incredible. This is great. And they're just marveled at at the sermon. And then he preaches another one. And they are so enraged with fury and wrath that they want to kill him right then. And there and a mob emerges and they try to send him off and throw him to his death. Well, you see, in the second sermon he preached, he began to challenge their understanding of God and salvation. He began to challenge their pride, their ethnic pride, and demand that they repent of sin. He began to reveal truth to them. You see, they're happy to receive Jesus as long as he's pleasing, as long as long as he doesn't make these demands on us. And, and we today are happy to receive Jesus as long as he just kind of follows us along and, and doesn't demand for us to sacrifice or to follow him. As long as he keeps giving us stuff and, and blessing us, we'll follow Jesus, we'll receive him. 
Well, that's not how he wants to be received. He wants to be received for who he is when he comes into your home and comes into your life and comes into your school and to your workplace and your bank accounts and your dreams and your thought lives and your ambition. He says, receive me for who I am. Follow me. Love me. Obey me. That's what it means to receive Jesus. To have him into your life. It reminds me of what his mother said when she was told by that angel that she would give birth to him. Behold, she said, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I will receive you, God. I will do exactly as you ask. We receive Jesus. But if you're back in Luke chapter 1, we see that we not only receive him, but he goes on in verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So we are to receive him and we are to believe in him. Now, I would want to be clear here that when the Bible, especially in the book of John, talks about belief, it does not, it's not saying that you need to agree with a set of facts. Some people think belief is just, okay, there's a set of facts and I just need to agree that they're true, that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died as a substitute on the cross for sinners, and then was raised from the dead three days later. And some people reduce belief to that. But belief is never, especially in John's writings, presented as simply, simply agreeing with these facts. It is more, it's just not a belief in the mind, but it's a belief in the heart. It is, it is not just an understanding of who he is, but it is an, an appetite for him, a delight in him. In fact, Jesus would, would, I think, teach us if you, we'll stay in John, but I just want to look at two passages, one in John 6, where Jesus kind of explains to us what belief is. What does it mean to believe in him? He, he says in this incredible message in, in John chapter 6, and we're just jumping in the middle of it, but in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me. See, there's that phrase. So whoever believes in me shall what? Shall never thirst. And so what Jesus is teaching us is that when we believe in him, it means coming to him and finding our satisfaction and delight in him, that he is the one who quenches that thirst for us. So it's not just saying, okay, I believe these things about Jesus, but it is, it is a, a belief in him in the sense that almost as if drinking in the water or eating the bread in which he is and finding our great delight, not in what he simply gives us, though he gives us amazing, incredible things, but finding our delight in him. Whoever believes in me, he says, never thirst again. I'm the water of life. You take me in. If you believe in me, you will find what you are looking for, your delight and your desire. That's what belief is, is having an appetite and a longing for Jesus. Well, in John chapter 9, we see another picture that Jesus gives us of belief. And it's in this passage in which Jesus does this incredible miracle that he not only heals a man who is blind, he gives him sight, but he heals a man who was born blind, never seen before in his life. And so Jesus will, will heal him and a great uh, uh, commotion will erupt because of this healing and, and all sorts of trouble will arise because this man will begin to testify to Jesus and eventually he'll be kicked out of the synagogue, which was a, a terrible thing to happen to him. Um, but we see Jesus finds him after this trial and after he's been uh, excommunicated from his synagogue in chapter 9 and verse 35. Jesus heard they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered him, and, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. 
He said, no, verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I just love that picture right in the middle before the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This man comes and he worships Jesus. That's what belief is. If you believe in Jesus, you will worship him. There's, there's no such thing as worship less belief. Belief compels us to praise Him. It compels us to worship Him. Charles Spurgeon, in preaching on this text, said He was the food, and they took Him in and fed on Him. He was the living water, and they received Him, drank Him up, and took Him into themselves. He was light, and they received the light. He was life, and they received the life. As an empty cup receives from the flowing fountain, so do we receive Christ into our emptiness. We being poor, naked, and miserable come to Him and receive riches, clothing, and happiness in Him. Salvation comes by receiving and believing in Christ. This is what the Scripture tells us here in verse 12. If that you receive Christ and if you believe in Christ today, I tell you based upon the authority of God's Word, if you do that today, you shall be given the right to be called a child of God. You see that in verse 12. He gave them the right to not just be called but to actually become God's children. By receiving Him and by believing Him, we become God's sons and daughters. God Himself becomes our Father. And I can give no greater Christmas gift to give you than the reality, the right that you have in Christ through your belief and receiving of Him that you might become His, His child. You who are spiritual orphans, God has adopted you. He says, I love you. I will be your Father and you will become part of my family. Jesus came into this world not looking simply for followers or even simply worshipers. He became looking for brothers and sisters that He might make them part of His family. Now think about where we've gone in John. We started from in the beginning of time and eternity. The Word of God, the very revelation of Him was with God and was God. And we consider the majesty of the Trinity. We talked about He was life in Himself and He brought light to this dark world. And we start with these great cosmological universal truths and all of a sudden we're down here in verse 12 in this very intimate beautiful picture that you Christian are God's child and so when you pray our father who is in heaven it is not some meaningless phrase or ritual to repeat it has more meaning than perhaps we shall ever know that God is his is our father we are his sons and daughters This is who we are. We're not merely His creatures who are therefore obligated to Him. We're not merely followers who are forgiven or servants who serve or disciples who obey. We're not even worshipers who praise. You are God's child. And so I say with John, as he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. That's what you've been called. That's the right that you have been given. So know this, that being a Christian is not simply what you do. And it's not even simply a matter of what you believe. It is even more fundamental than that. It is who you are. It's who you are. And I wonder if you think of yourself this way. Or I wonder if you identify yourself more as a government worker or a teacher or a manager or an assistant or as a mother. I'm tempted to think of myself more as a preacher than God's son. In fact, I'm tempted to be more concerned with what you think about what I say than what God thinks about what I say. 
mean, how utterly ridiculous is that? And I think so often we live our lives evaluating who we are by what other people think. If I please my boss or to get the approval of my employees or do I have the respect of my peers or the praise of my spouse or the obedience of my children and we begin to let these things define us. That's who I am. And if you're tempted like I am to find my happiness and joy and my existence and my identity in the things I do and the reception I receive from others, Will you please listen to me? As I tell you, you are God's child. Forever he shall be your father. And you shall be his son and daughter. No matter what you do, no matter what the world says about you, you are a child of God. In fact, you notice verse 12, it says, you have been given this right. The authority, you've been given authority because of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus to be his child. He has given this to you, this right. I love the the phrase that was written of old, the voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been left off the penalty which your sins deserve. But the voice which means acceptance will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and presence. That's what we've been given. Not simply forgiveness that we may go because our sins are taken care of, but adoption that that we may come to him, that we are his and he is ours. And as his child, we are to trust him and to know him and to speak of him and to obey him and to love him and magnify him and pray to him and pursue him and delight in him and worship him. We are his children. Because we believe and because we have received him. But the question I think that he, John wants to go to, because we may get kind of high on ourselves and think, okay, well, I must be something because I, I, I've received him. Everybody else rejected him, but I receive him. And notice what he says in verse 13. He begins to refer to the sovereignty of God and in our, this work of salvation when he says, You were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And he begins to explain how is it that we came to this point where we can believe in him and to receive him. He says you can do so because you've been given new life. You've been born again. It's not of your own effort or even your own will, he says, that you actually come to this faith in him, that, that God has given it to you. You have been born of him. He says here, he negates his three negations, doesn't he? You are born of God, right? You become his children. You have this new life, not by blood, he says, not of blood, which I think is a reference to ancestry. It's a sense saying that we don't become God's children because of the family in which we're born, whether it be Jewish or Christian. That's not how we become God's children. God has no grandchildren, the saying goes. And so we're not, we don't, if you think that you're okay with God because your dad's a pastor or, or a Christian or your mom's a, uh, you know, Sunday school teacher or whatever it is, God says, no, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with where you're from. The second negation, he says, nor the will of flesh. There's, there's a lot of debate as to what this means. I think the best understanding, at least how I can understand it, is a reference to sexual desire in the sense of having children. And he says, okay, you don't become God's child through the natural processes that we all, we all, we give birth to children. That's not how you become God's child. And then he says here at the, the third negation, nor of the will of man. It's not even by human will that you become God's child, a child of God. How is it? He says, but of God. It's of God. It's not by family or natural processes or even our own will by which we are saved. 
It is by the new birth that he gives us. And Jesus is going to talk about, in John, when he gets to John 3, talk about the new birth that it needs to happen. You need to be born again, he teaches us. And I love that picture of the new birth because I think it very much captures what's happened to us. That, that the new birth is something that we don't bring about, that we just receive. It, it, it takes place in our life. Uh, Eden was, was born, um, what, about eight months ago in, in March. She didn't cause her birth. She, she didn't choose us as a family. She didn't contribute anything to her birth, uh, except maybe pain. She brought some of that with her, right? But she, she, she just received it. She didn't help. No one, when Eden was born, went up to my daughter and congratulated her. Well done, little girl, they didn't say. They congratulated Allegra. Well done. That you were, they congratulated me because I'm an incredible coach. Right? 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 But they didn't, Eden just received the birth. She, she didn't, she didn't bring it about. Well, the same thing for us. We had nothing to do with our first birth and so nothing to do with our Second birth, it is something that God does for us, not by blood or by will of the flesh or by the will of man that we bring this about. In fact, John would write in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, right? That present tense, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, has been, past tense, born of God. So your believing didn't cause the new birth, but the new birth actually gives rise to your believing. That is, if you believe in Christ and you receive Christ, you have been born of God. You have been born again. He, therefore, receives all the glory for it, all the credit and all the praise for your life in Him, that you are His child. And so, Christian, I just ask you as we close this morning, will you not give Him thanks today that you are His child? Will you not this week live with this indomitable joy that no matter what you do or don't do or no matter what people think about you, you are God's son. You are God's daughter. And yet not everyone is. You notice that in verse 12, I trust that it's only those who receive Him and believe in His name become His children. You see, the Bible tells us that, that there are those, as we already explored, that reject the light and they're not God's children. Jesus Himself would say in John 8, if God were your Father, you would love Me. And so I ask you, perhaps I ask every one of us this morning, will you please, as we end this morning, ask this question in your heart? Not everyone is a child of God. Am I? Just then. Not everyone is a child of God. Am I? And maybe there's some, someone here this morning who will conclude just in the privacy of their own soul that I'm not. And you know it. Holy Spirit's laying that on you even this very moment. Will you not cry out to God that he might give you faith to believe? that he might give you a willingness to receive him. And maybe even now you feel that faith welling up in your heart. Maybe you feel that belief coming to you. Will you not confess that? Will you not cry out this very moment in your heart, I believe in you, Jesus. I receive who you are, that you today might become his child. If you do that, will you not seek me out this after service that we can talk together and pray and rejoice together for what God has done. For the rest of us, will we not rejoice in the great work, the great gift in which God has given us today? Let us pray together. We love you, Father. We thank you for your great grace upon us that you have 
caused us to be born again, as Peter would write in his great epistle, that you have given us new life, that we by faith and receiving you have become your children, that we have the great honor and privilege that we are God's children and forevermore shall be. Will you help us, therefore, as your children to go about this week not evaluating who we are or what, uh, or what we do by what the world says or what we occupy ourselves with, that we will understand as the foundation of how we live this life, that we are your children and will be forever. And we thank you for that great, incredible gift that Christ has not only brought truth as to who you are, but has brought us grace. I pray for my friend here this morning that perhaps has confessed in their own heart that he or she is not your child. Will you not, please, in your kindness, Jesus, you are the author and perfecter of faith. Will you not give them faith to believe? Will you not give them a willingness to receive? Will you do that good work in their heart even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.